0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 149, Boston's Rock and Roll Riots. Hi, I'm Jake. After a few weeks of pretty intense topics on the podcast, like public executions and the rise of the KKK, I thought it'd be nice to take on a lighter subject. This week we're talking about the riots that over-the-top rock concerts have spawned in Boston history, from the 1950s to the 1990s, as well as several near-misses. We'll be hearing about everybody from Chuck Berry to Led Zeppelin, and from the Rolling Stones to Green Day. We'll look into the causes and consequences of some of the most iconic melees in Boston's rock and roll history. But before we talk about rock and roll and riots, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Boston Riots, Three Centuries of Social Violence by Jack Tager. Like we've said many times on the show before, Boston's never needed much of an excuse to start a riot, from bread riots during the Revolutionary War to the 20th century rock riots we'll discuss this week. Published in 2001, this study of Boston's riotous history describes some of the same incidents we've covered on the podcast, including 18th century Pope's Night riots, the 1747 Impressment Riot, the 1834 Ursuline Convent Riot, the 1837 Broad Street Riot, the 1919 Boston Police Strike, and the 1967 Grove Hall Riot. The difference is that where our podcast tends to treat each of these incidents as an event unto itself, a standalone story to tell, Tager traces a few common themes that tie many of Boston's riots together. Among the themes he identifies is the attempt to enforce or rebel against racial and societal norms in Annabelle and Boston, anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant sentiments in the mid-to-late 19th century, what Tager refers to as ghetto riots, and waves of anti-busing sentiments. He tries to find the links between, for example, the rise of James Michael Curley's Irish-American Democratic Party machine and the Boston police strike riots. And then in turn, he ties those to the widespread bias against Irish immigrants at the time of Boston's draft riots a generation or two earlier. When he talks about the causes of violence in Roxbury in 1967 and 1968, and the white blowback against busing in the 70s and 80s, the language Tager uses to talk about race and gender seems dated in 2019. His attempt to uncover and connect the roots of Boston's longstanding tendency to riot is nevertheless worth reading. Now, at this point, I'd usually read the publisher's blurb describing the book, but I want to switch it up and instead read an angry one-star review of Boston Riots from Amazon. Boston Riots is historically inaccurate. Professor Tager seems to think that a scuffle, fistfight, shoving match, or chanting constitutes a riot. In his book Boston Riots, Professor Tager is guilty of semantic manipulation as he redefines the word riot to fit his politically correct neo-Marxist interpretation of Boston history. For example, I was personally involved in a few of the anti-force busing demonstrations mentioned in Boston riots, yet no riot of any kind broke out. Professor Tager writes myopically, being unaffected and far away from his subject matter. He strangely omits the fact that some of the scuffles which broke out in front of my high school, South Boston High, were instigated by the tactical police force. It is a singular point in history that Boston has never had a riot. Seems to have touched a nerve, eh? Somebody who personally participated in the violent protests against court-ordered busing, we don't know which ones, but many involved assaults on black schoolchildren, thinks that Tager is a neo-Marxist. And he concludes that Boston, which can be objectively shown to be one of the most riotous cities in American history, has never had a riot. If this guy hates it, you know the book must be worth reading. We'll have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. And for our historical event this week, We're featuring the upcoming Giving Voice benefit for the Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford. A few weeks back, I noticed that the event calendars I usually check were pretty sparse for August and September, so I put out a call on social media for organizations that we don't usually feature to get their events onto the show. One of the responses I got was from the Royal House and Slave Quarters, which is a terrific historic site that we once featured back when we had a featured site every week. Though Massachusetts is rightfully proud of our abolitionist past, we often forget that before that sentiment arose, the Commonwealth practiced slavery for about 150 years. The Royal House is the only local site I've been to, and perhaps the only site connected to slavery that I've been to anywhere, that puts the primary focus of your visit on the enslaved rather than their enslavers. Giving voice is their annual benefit, where they raise a significant portion of their budget as well as building community and showing off the work they do. This year's Giving Voice will be held on September 15th at 2 p.m. It's being billed as An Afternoon with Historian Tia Miles. You'll enjoy refreshments on the museum lawn, get a tour of the house, and enjoy remarks by their featured speaker. Here's how they describe her. Tia Miles is a professor of history and Radcliffe alumni professor at Harvard University. Recipient of a 2011 MacArthur Foundation fellowship, Professor Miles is the author of five books of history and one novel. Her most recent work, The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits, was co-winner of the prestigious 2018 Frederick Douglass Book Prize, among many other honors. She writes, Historians of the United States are continually unearthing an ugly truth. American slavery had no bounds. It penetrated every corner of this country, materially economically, and ideologically, and the unjust campaign to preserve it is embedded in our built environments, north and south, east and west. As a fundraiser, tickets for the event range from $25 to $50. We'll have a link to the information you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 149. Speaking of fundraisers, I just want to say thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. It's been exciting and gratifying to build Hub History from nothing to a point where thousands of people listen to our show every week. Your support means that we can cover our monthly costs and dream about ways to make the show better. We have big plans to improve the show, from moving our hosting to a different platform, to redesigning the website, to upgrading some of our recording hardware. If you're not yet supporting us and you'd like to, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. Thanks again to all our new and existing supporters. Now it's time for this week's main topic. I've always been a huge music fan, and after I moved from rural Appalachia to the big city in the 1990s, I immersed myself in the Boston punk and hardcore scene. It seemed like there were amazing shows every weekend, at clubs like the Middle East and TC the Bears, as well as VFW halls, church basements, and other DIY venues. I was lucky enough to get into the legendary last show by the Bruisers at the Middle East downstairs in 1998 when the not so secret special guests were West Coast mainstays rancid. I saw the dropkick Murphys play in the basement of a Unitarian church in Duxbury long after they were famous enough to sell out bigger and frankly more professional venues. Among all the amazing shows I went to in those days, one night in the spring of 1999 stands out as especially memorable. Now, my memory of a single night 20 years ago is certainly fallible, but I know that anti-heroes were one of the headliners, and I know it was the last show for a local band called The Trouble. The Trouble straddled the line between punk and hardcore, with melodic but lightning-fast riffs, street-punk-inspired lyrics, and mid-song breakdowns reminiscent of the New York hardcore scene. They were a favorite band for a lot of Boston punks, so when they announced that they'd be breaking up, people came out of the woodwork for their last show. The rest of the lineup is fuzzy in my memory, but after looking at other people's accounts of the evening, I see that Patriot was one of the headliners and local punks The Vigilantes were opening. The Ducky Boys were there, of course, because they played practically every show back then. I'm pretty sure they even opened that Dropkick Murphys gig at the church in Duxbury. The show is booked at the Greek American Club, which a lot of people called the Greek American Political Hall, on Green Street in Cambridge. After climbing a couple of flights of steep stairs to their performance hall, you were confronted with a gymnasium-like space with a stage on one side. Al Quint, editor of the punk zine Suburban Voice, was kind enough to dig into his personal archives of the magazine and share his coverage of that evening with me. Unfortunately, the show with the trouble, ducky boys, and vigilantes at the Greek-American club was quite bittersweet. People turned out in droves for this one and the line stretched down the block. The main reason for the turnout and the bittersweetness is because it was The Troubles' final show. What a way to go out. Ripping through songs like There Was No Tomorrow, which, of course, there wasn't, it left the crowd chanting, Don't break up, don't break up, repeatedly. Few bands in Boston bridge the gulf between punk and hardcore, and The Troubles' raw aggression and tuneful underpinnings will be missed. The article also notes that Al stepped out to get a soda after the trouble set, so we missed the excitement of what came next. Somebody started a fight during the anti hero set. Honestly, there were a lot of fights at shows in those days, so this wasn't especially memorable. At a club, the bouncers or wizard security would drag the combatants out, and the show would go on. At a more DIY venue, the crowd might just close in on whoever was causing trouble and push them toward the door, while the band didn't miss a note. Unfortunately, this particular fight broke out just as the beat cop making his rounds in Central Square poked his head in the door to see how the evening was going. Dano Pugach of New Noise magazine remembers a slightly more dramatic version of what went down, writing, We've always had a skinhead contingency in Boston, but most of them were sharps, a.k.a. anti-racist. Only in Boston would you find African-American or Asian-American skinheads, and God bless them. A few songs into the set, a huge fight broke out. I didn't see most of it, and all I know is second- and third-hand accounts over the years. The gist of it is that there were racist versus non-racist skins fighting, and someone started a fire in the bathroom. However, his memory of what came next matches mine precisely. Apparently that beat cop called for help because before we knew what was going on, the Cambridge police riot squad came charging up the stairs into the hall. They had on helmets with face shields, and they were carrying nightsticks and those big clear plastic riot shields. They shut down the show nearly instantly, and forced everybody out of the building in a rush, half trampling each other as they crowded down the narrow stairwells. That was my induction into the fraternity of rock and roll riots in Boston. As we've said before, even before in this show, Boston has never needed much of an excuse to riot. Over almost four century we've had political riots, hateful riots, and plenty of frivolous riots. In past episodes, we've discussed Boston's ancient Pope's Night celebrations, which nearly always devolved into riots, a riot that broke out when a drunken sailor was arrested in Revere, and a Thanksgiving Day riot at Harvard that students started just because. We've seen anti-immigrant riots directed at Irish Americans on Broad Street and at Charlestown's Ursuline Convent. And we've talked about riots sparked by protests over unlawful impression into the British Navy in the 1740s, the Stamp Act in the 1760s, and even police violence against peaceful protesters in Roxbury in the 1960s. Of all the things people could choose to riot over, a rock and roll show might just be the most frivolous of all. And yet Boston, like many other cities, has a rich history of riots and near-riots at rock concerts. If you take enough excited young people with hormones, and quite possibly booze or drugs, coursing through their veins, and you pack them too tightly into a confined space, it doesn't take too much of a spark to set off the powder keg. Perhaps the biggest rock-related powder keg of them all arrived with James Brown's concert at the Boston Garden on April 5th, 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been murdered the evening before, and cities across the country were bracing for a wave of rioting. As we discussed with author Ryan Walsh, officials first thought about canceling the James Brown concert, but then decided to not only go on with the show, but to make sure it was simulcast on WGBH, then replayed later that evening. Mayor Kevin White, whom Brown described as a swingin' cat in a bit of creative fiction, insisted on being invited on stage during the show to address the audience. He paid tribute to Dr. King, saying that King died for all of us, black and white. Then he continued... This is our city, and its future is in our hands. Tonight, tomorrow, and the days that follow. Martin Luther King loved this city, and it's up to our generation to prove his faith in us. So all I ask you tonight is this. So let us look at each other here in the gardens and back at home, and pledge that no matter what any other community might do, we in Boston will honor Dr. King in peace.. Thank you. A little over an hour into the show, a large group of mostly African American fans began pushing through the barricades and climbing on stage the white police officers who were detailed to the garden that night began forcing them back. Perhaps sensing how badly this moment might turn out, both inside the crowded arena and for viewers at home, Brown quickly asked the police to step aside. Wait a minute. Move up, I'll be all right. I'll be fine. I'll be I'm all right. Enough. I'm all right. but then he seemed unable to control the crowd until he finally demanded their respect and cooperation. No, uh, it's wrong. Now, I asked the police to step back because I figured I could get some respect for my own people. That makes sense. And all we together, we. Yeah. Meanwhile, viewers at home were glued to the TV set to watch the live broadcast, and Boston was spared the widespread rioting that many other American cities saw that night. James Brown wasn't the only musical act to inspire a non-riot in Boston. During the Beatles' first American tour, the whole country got caught up in Beatlemania, and Boston was no exception. About seven months after the Fab Four played on the Ed Sullivan Show for the first time, they made their first concert stop in Boston. Arriving at Hanscom Field in the wee hours of September 12, 1964, they were whisked off to Boston's Madison Hotel under tight state police security. While well, all vacation requests for the Boston Police Department were cancelled, so officers could provide crowd control around Boston Garden, where fans had begun gathering over twenty four hours before the show. The band spent the day resting at the hotel while thousands of enthusiastic teenagers swarmed the streets outside, hoping to catch a glimpse of them. The tight security continued throughout the day while the Beatles gave a press conference inside the hotel and then finally snuck into the garden through a side entrance inside the arena. Fans scream so loudly and constantly that it's entirely impossible to hear the concert and recordings. The Globe described how apparently hysterical teen girls were hospitalized after passing out, forgetting their own names, or attempting to jump from an upper balcony to be closer to the band. Outside, more potential trouble was brewing. The next day's Boston Globe referred to the thousands of teenage fans who descended on the area as an astonishing human storm. The paper estimated that 2,000 people were pushing against the barriers closing off the garden entrances inside North Station, describing them as being in a frenzy to see the Beatles. Another 3,000 were reported to be gathered under the windows of the Madison, hoping to see their heroes. The crowd of unticketed fans milling around the doors of the amphitheater was thick enough to prevent hundreds of ticket holders from ever making their way into the show. The closest the evening came to a real riot, was when police had to clear North Station, as reported in The Globe. A few scuffles and fistfights broke out, and this was the cause for the crowds both inside and outside to swirl together. Two glass doors leading into the station concourse were smashed. The concourse was cleared of teenagers by police, an almost impossible task. As the youths were hustled out, hundreds more ran pell-mell around the concourse balcony, shouting obscenities at police below and stampeding adults out of their path. Meanwhile, both sides of Causeway Street were lined several deep with screaming teenagers. Suddenly, the crowds on both sides came together in the middle of the street. Mounted police thundered through the mob and quickly broke up the trouble. As the screams inside were still fading, the Beatles jumped back into their motorcade and zoomed back to Hanscom. The plane took off for their next gig by 11 p.m. Of course, the Beatles weren't the only band that sparked a near riot. And the James Brown concert wasn't the only time that Mayor Kevin White took the stage at the Boston Garden to head off potential trouble. During their 1972 Exile on Main Street tour, the Rolling Stones were booked to play a sold-out show at the Garden on July 18th. That afternoon, their private plane, the Lapping Tongue, arrived into TF Green Airport in Rhode Island late enough that their fans were already packing the venue by the time they landed. The scene the band made at the airport would put them even further behind schedule. In his book The Rolling Stones' Fifty Years, Christopher Samford describes what happened after Keith Richards punched a paparazzi photographer. The Port Authority cops arrested Keith. Jagger trotting alongside, shouting, Look, man, what are you doing? We got a show tonight! After the third or fourth F.U., Mick then joined Keith in the paddy wagon. Once in custody... The latter was relieved of a .38 pistol found concealed in his boot. Perhaps, fortunately, an aide not involved in the fracas was carrying Keith's drugs for the night, which he remembered as comprising three or four pills, some amyls, a half-pound sack of coke, and a hash pipe. In an interview with WBUR, Mayor White's Director of Public Safety, Peter Mead, recalled how the mayor did his best to head off trouble. We were having difficulties, serious difficulties in the South End with a couple of nights of, I wouldn't call it rioting, but disturbances in the South End. And the Rolling Stones were arrested in Rhode Island, and the garden, the Boston Garden, was full. And I remember we were talking about where we were going to put the police. And Kevin says in the South End, We keep them here. I'm going to the garden. I wanted to grab him and say, You're out of your mind. I don't think he knew who the Rolling Stones were at all. But he called to Rhode Island to get them released from jail, and that took some work to get them. These guys were arrested on drug charges or something like that. And he went to the garden, and he told the people in the garden what was going on, that the Rolling Stones had been arrested in Rhode Island, and that they were on their way, and he said, I've ordered the MBTA to stay open. White made some calls and somehow convinced a Rhode Island judge to let the band go in the name of public safety. Taking the stage at Boston Garden, he told the restless crowd, The Rolling Stones have been busted, but I have sprung them. They tossed a football around with bored fans. By all accounts, the Stones finally rolled up behind the garden at 1 a.m., ran straight on stage, and played one of the greatest shows of the tour. Years later, Aerosmith's Joe Perry told the Boston Phoenix, It was as amazing as you can imagine. And it was a combination of events that you just can't orchestrate. It was the kind of thing that made the Stones what they are. I mean, the biggest rock-and-roll outlaws in the world get arrested and then make a mad dash to Boston with a police escort. And I remember Mayor White throwing a football out into the crowd to keep everyone occupied. And then finally they arrived, the street-fighting men with the rock-and-roll lifestyle they had. Kevin White later suggested that the band might like to give a free concert for his family and political supporters in order to thank him for his help in getting them out of jail. It didn't happen. Besides all these almost-riots, there have been a handful of real rock riots in Boston, including one that ended with the promoter being charged with inciting a riot and promoting anarchy, and rock concerts banned in Boston. Alan Freed is remembered as the father of rock and roll after coining the term to describe the types of records he played on his Cleveland radio show in the early 1950s. He was known for peppering his broadcasts with hepcat lingo and for promoting African-American artists instead of playing covers of their songs by white artists. Starting in 1952, Freed began putting on the first rock and roll concerts, first in Cleveland and then around the country. In 1958, Alan Freed was touring with a concert series known as The Big Beat. It featured about a dozen rock and roll performers headlined by Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, and Chuck Berry. On May 3rd, the Big Beat danced its way into Boston for a one-night engagement at the Boston Arena, today Northeastern University's Matthews Arena. About 6,000 fans, mostly teenagers, packed into the arena at times screaming, standing on their chairs, or even dancing in the aisles. Though it sounds like it was only a fraction of the pandemonium that the Beatles would produce just six years later, every time the crowd got excited, the police detail would force Freed to stop the show and make the kids settle down. In the May 5th edition of the Boston Globe, Boston Arena manager Paul Brown describes his idea to keep things under control by refusing to lower the house lights. The kids were standing on the seats and dancing in the aisles the minute the backs of the police were turned, and the building was dark with only the spotlights on, so I said, the heck with that, and ordered all the lights on. Freed stopped the show and talked with Police Sergeant John Connolly, and he backed me up. So what did Freed do but apologize over the microphone for the bright lights and add, It looks like the police in Boston don't want you kids to have any fun. Accounts say that this is the moment when the evening turned ugly, with fans tearing out their seats and throwing them toward the stage. Chuck Berry was forced to take cover behind his band's drum riser. A few minutes later, the show ended and the hall was cleared. A May 4th Wire story describes what happened as the crowd entered the streets outside. Gangs from a rock-and-roll jam session at Boston Arena ran berserk early today through Roxbury in the Back Bay. Fifteen persons, including six women, were stabbed, slugged, beaten, or robbed by the teenage boys and girls who were among 6,000 attending the riotous session. A story in the next day's Globe continues. Violence followed the show at Boston Arena. A Stoughton sailor was stabbed and 14 other persons were slugged, beaten, or robbed by a satin-jacketed pack of teenagers after they left the arena. Among the crowd that night was Albert Rajiani, a 19-year-old sailor from Stoughton. WGBH interviewed him about his experience in 2014. It was a really good show. Everybody was really into it. What a crowd. We were up in the balcony so we could have a good view of the stage and everything going on. All of a sudden, the lights go on in the whole place and you see all the aisles. You just see rows of cops running down the aisles. Alan Freed come out and said, I guess the Boston police don't want you kids to have any fun. As the show ended, police forced the audience out of the arena and into the surrounding streets, where Rajiani was separated from his friends. All of a sudden, there's a guy in front of me. His eyes look kind of glassy, so I figured now he's either on drugs or drunk. And then the next thing I know, I get hit in the back of the head. He said that he was surrounded by a pack of toughs. They really worked me over. Whacking me from all over. People screaming. Fists. A knife coming at me. I could hardly put up my arm to defend myself. Of the 15 people who were reportedly injured in the melee outside the concert, Rajiani was the most seriously hurt, though he always suspected that he was assaulted by outside agitators, not his fellow rock fans. He was hospitalized for two weeks as he recovered. Though his assailants were never caught, the DA's office did whisk him from his hospital bed to the courthouse to testify. He told WGBH, They bring me in the grand jury, and they ask me just one question that always sticks in my mind. Did Alan Freed say this? I said yes, he did. Like Rajiani's testimony, most accounts of the concert say that Alan Freed told fans that the Boston police didn't want them to have any fun. However, a few versions say that a local DJ who was helping with the show was responsible for the comment. When Freed was finally able to tell his side of the story in the may sixth Boston Globe, he categorically denied having made the statement. However, he did describe his battle with arena management over the house lights. The Globe reported, Freed said that I did ask the management four or five times to please turn the lights down. I said at one point, this show is not going to continue until the lights are down. These people have paid their money, and they are entitled to hear the show. They did finally turn the lights down, but the fellows in the projection booth kept pointing at a police sergeant. Even before the show started, that police sergeant had come up to me and said, We don't like your kind of music. There are nothing but hoods in here. I took that sergeant to the front of the house and I pointed out to him how the kids were all beautifully dressed in jackets and ties and cute dresses. And I said, how can you call these people hoods? The sergeant just shrugged his shoulders and walked away. I admit some of the kids did get out of their chairs at the end of the performance. They always do, but we've never had any trouble in any of the other 38 cities where we've appeared. These kids in Boston were the greatest. They were swell, wonderful kids. But the police were terrible. They were brutal. They grabbed kids and shoved them back. I saw one of them grab a little 14-year-old girl and call her a foul name. I was shocked. After all, I've got teenagers myself. I said to one of the cops, how can you treat these kids like that? And he answered, they're out of line. We had no incidents inside that arena whatsoever. We've been treated fine in 38 other cities, but not in Boston, where the police were looking for a scapegoat. The local press was more than happy to treat Alan Freed as that scapegoat. An editorial in the Woburn Times on May 6th called for his head, saying, We have a solution. Alan Freed should be barred from ever conducting a youth entertainment session in Boston or anywhere else. It continues, it might be a good thing to give Alan Freed a bit of the bumping around that innocent Bostonians got from the kids he bedeviled into gangsterism. That same day, an editorial in one of the Cleveland papers, where they thought they knew Freed pretty well, condemned all of rock and roll. These rock and roll shows seem to adult observers to be designed mostly for young persons who are confused by immature romantic notions and have little or no standards of taste, at least in music. They throw away their money to the show promoters for that dubious privilege of having their eardrums and their intelligence, if any, assaulted. In the days following the Boston show, Freed's big beat concerts were canceled in New Haven, Connecticut, Newark, New Jersey, Troy, New York, and only allowed to proceed under strict conditions in Providence. Claiming that they hadn't offered him any support in the wake of his arrest in Boston, Alan Freed quit his job at WINS on May 9th. The same day, a grand jury in Boston indicted him for inciting a riot, as well as for violating the state's anti-anarchy law, which carried penalties of a $1,000 fine and three years in prison. He turned himself in, then on May 15th he was released on bail and given a trial date in January. After several delays, the anti-anarchy charges were dropped the following March, and he was eventually acquitted of inciting a riot. In the days after the Big Beat riot, Boston Mayor John Hines, namesake for the Hines Convention Center, came out strong with a condemnation of rock and roll. He told the Boston Globe, I am against rock and roll dances such as the performance at the arena last Saturday. This sort of performance attracts the troublemakers and the irresponsible. They will not be permitted in Boston and no outside promoters need apply. A license was given for the performance at the arena, and the promoter agreed to have a complement of two sergeants and nine policemen to keep law and order. Even with this array of police, the performance got out of hand. We will have no more of it in Boston. Mayor Hines' ban on rock made a lot of headlines, but it didn't have a lasting effect on the Boston music scene. However, that wouldn't be the last time that a rock riot ended up causing a Boston mayor to issue a ban. The next time, it wasn't a ban on rock and roll, but instead a ban on one of the biggest rock groups of the era. A lot changed in the 17 years between 1958 and 1975. Chuck Berry, who was singing about Johnny B. Good in 1958, may not have recognized Led Zeppelin's 1975 hit Cashmere as music, much less the next evolution of rock and roll. Like you 2 a half-decade later... Zeppelin had basically gotten their foot in the door of the American music scene by succeeding here in Boston. They made a name for themselves in 1969 with a series of shows at the club The Boston Tea Party, which author Ryan Walsh told us more about back in episode 70. Then they played nine shows in Boston over the course of the next three years on their early U.S. tours. So when the band announced a new U.S. tour would be stopping in Boston on February 4, 1975, fans were excited. Tickets were scheduled to go on sale at the Boston Garden box office on January 6th, so 3,000 people lined up on the sidewalk outside the night before. According to Stephen Rosenblatt, ticket manager at the Garden, this was normal. For years and years, we had people line up overnight to wait for tickets, he said. However, that night, the temperature in Boston dropped down into the single digits, and the Zeppelin fans just weren't prepared for it. Stephen Davis, author of two books about the 1975 Zeppelin tour, said, By about 5 p.m., kids began to line up on Causeway Street outside the old Boston Garden. They were all dressed in blue denim jeans and jean jackets and things like that, and they were freezing. Boston Garden management took pity on the fans and decided that just this once, they'd let them all come into the lobby and wait inside until the box office opened in the morning. This turned out to be a fateful mistake. According to Davis... Pretty soon, they were passing bottles of Boone's Farm apple wine and Ripple, another kind of wine they had back then, and smoking joints and generally getting rowdy. As the night wore on, the ticket lobby became boring, and members of the crowd broke into the actual seating area of the garden. In their interview with Davis, WGBH comments that this is the moment when things went from rowdy to riot. Davis continues, The kids broke into the beer concessions and started feeding themselves. And when the next shift came on, they turned the fire hoses on them. Then they turned the fire hoses on Boston Garden. Then they started to torch the seats. Rosenblatt recalls, You couldn't have this kind of crowd running around untethered inside the building, so we decided to open the ticket windows. He said the concert was sold out by 6 a.m. Our old friend Kevin White, who'd been described as a swingin' cat by James Brown and personally got the Rolling Stones out of jail, was still mayor of Boston. And this time around, he wasn't feeling so lenient. He called in the BPD riot squad to disperse the crowd with nightsticks and attack dogs, but not before the rioters did $50,000 in damage. The president of the Boston Garden Arena Corporation was interviewed by The Globe the next morning. He said, You have to laugh. If you didn't, you'd cry. Here we brought them into the garden for two reasons, to take them out of the cold and to relieve the harassment of railroad and subway passengers. What's the use? You try to take care of people and then you get burned. Why go out of your way? Stephen Davis said that he was personally present when White visited the arena the next morning, recalling, he saw the burned seats in the flooded hockey rink and the trash concession stands and he said, Led Zeppelin will never play in Boston again. Kevin White was right. He ordered a five-year ban on Led Zeppelin shows in Boston, so they skipped the hub for the 1977 tour. Then in 1980, drummer John Bonham died, and Led Zeppelin was gone. White was elected to a third term later in 1975, and then a fourth in 1979. After that, there were minor disturbances at a BU performance by the Stompers in 1982, and after a show by New Order at the Boston Opera House in 1985, but the next memorable riot came in the 1990s, and all my friends claimed to have been there. On the evening of September 9th, 1994, alt-rock radio station WFNX hosted a Welcome Back Weekend show for local college students at the Hatch Shell, the open-air bandstand along the Charles River that's better known as the venue for the Boston Pops annual July 4th concert. Early in the summer, WFNX and the Boston Phoenix had begun the booking process for their big back-to-school concert, and somebody recommended the obscure San Francisco Bay Area punk band Green Day. The bookers did their thing, Green Day was signed for the show, and then something completely unexpected happened. Before the summer was over, they blew up into one of the biggest pop sensations in the country. An article on Vanya Land quotes Ted Drozdowski as saying, No one could have predicted how quickly the Bay Area Brats would rise to mega-popularity. August saw the band steal the show at Woodstock 94 with a set that ended with a massive set-ending mud fight. It was replayed on MTV ad nauseum over the next couple of weeks, alongside the Longview and Basket Case videos. The album Dookie was certified platinum by the beginning of September, and on September 9th, somewhere between 70,000 and 100,000 people showed up at the Esplanade. The WFNX summer series usually drew between 8,000 and 10,000 people. With far more than that expected to turn out, the Boston Globe ran down the additional preparations that had been made on the morning of the show. Police plan to have about 100 officers on site. A private company, Wizard Security, will supplement the officers. These are people who will be monitors throughout the crowd, said Phoenix Special Projects Director David Bieber. They'll be there to assist. We told the MDC and the police that when it comes to public safety, we'd rather err on the side of caution. And they, basically, told us what we should have. At least one lane of Storo Drive will be closed, possibly the entire road, if the crowd safety situation dictates it. The hatch shell area will be ringed with a metal fence, and a barrier will be erected between the stage and the crowd. Extra trains will be added to the MBTA. There will be at least 50 portable toilets set up, about 10 vendor booths, and various food and drink concessions. In a decision that someone out there definitely regrets, one of those food and drink concessionaires was selling 90s-appropriate Snapple in glass bottles. On the Esplanade, things were tense even before Green Day took the stage. Just for fun, I asked my friend Joe Harris about what he remembers from that day. He emailed me a short summary. Dad dropped four of us off at the Museum of Science and told us to meet him back there after the concert ended. We walked over to the Esplanade and ran into another dozen hang kids along the way. Mises opened, and no one gave a crap. We all wanted that Green Day show. Someone from WFNX came out after the Mises set and asked for everyone to take a few steps back because it was so overcrowded. Not sure if it accomplished anything, but most of us tried to back up a little. In five minutes, Green Day's not going to come on. okay? It's as simple as that. I know! I know! We want them to play! Before long, those Snapple bottles were flying toward the stage. The band made it through six and a half songs, less than 20 minutes, before organizers pulled the plug. Even before the first song, Welcome to Paradise, was halfway through, hundreds of fans had forced their way through the barricades in front of the stage. A mosh pit enveloped thousands of fans in the center of the crowd, and soon, people were getting injured. Joe's account continues. Green Day hit the stage, and the place went effing berserk. I got separated from everyone almost instantly. A crowd surfer landed on my head during the first or second song and knocked off my eyeglasses. Amazingly, people actually made space for me to find them. Well, what was left of them. One lens was gone, and the frames were pretty bent. I was grateful to have decent vision back in one eye at least, so I bent them back into shape and put them on. In the middle of the song F.O.D., the PA system cut out. As the crowd screamed and jeered, singer Billy Joe Armstrong jumped off the stage and started ripping flowers out of the ground, while a WFNX on-air personality pled with the crowd to leave calmly. (laughs) Joe remembers that the worst of the chaos happened after the band left the stage. The show only lasted a few songs because the crowd was so unruly. Green Day bailed, the WFNX guy told us to go home, and that was when the crap really hit the fan. Now there were tens of thousands of people on the esplanade with no place to go. The cops were dispersing the crowd, and I was lucky to find the three guys I came with. Some people were convinced that my buddy had weed stashed under his beanie, and they chased us for a block or two. We made it over to Charles Circle and stopped to get a drink at the CVS. The place was in the process of being looted by hundreds of displaced concertgoers. I grabbed an orange juice and walked out with it. In my mind, I was a badass. In reality, I was a 14-year-old sophomore with broken glasses. We walked back to the Museum of Science and found my dad with the caravan. He was kind of pissed I broke my glasses, but glad we were all okay. Okay. Juliana Hatfield played in the lagoon at the Cambridge side Galleria later that weekend and that was a far more laid-back affair. His experience more or less aligns with the reporting in the next day's globe that for more than an hour after the concert ended state and boston police scuffled with scores of jeering angry concertgoers some of whom pelted the police with bottles rocks and mud. The Boston Herald added Requests for the crowd to disperse failed to move along a hardcore group of about 5,000 people, who taunted police and began throwing bottles at officers and concert staff. At 9.30 p.m., a line of approximately 100 state troopers and Boston police officers formed a human wedge and drove the crowd out of the esplanade and into the back bay. Two days later, the Metropolitan District Commission, precursors of today's DCR, announced that they would no longer allow rock shows on the esplanade. I moved to Boston three years later, and I was always told that the Green Day Riot was the reason it was so hard for punk and hardcore bands to find willing venues in Boston. That's probably why The Troubles' last show was being held at the Greek-American political hall instead of a club when I experienced my own little rock riot. Why don't we hear anything about rock riots in Boston these days? Is it because guitar music's for grandpas now? Or perhaps it's because we're too busy rioting over sports wins and losses? If you have a theory, write in and let me know. To learn more about Boston's many rock riots and near riots, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 149. We'll have audio of that notorious Green Day show, video of the Beatles being interviewed at the Madison Hotel in 1964, and a few photos of the Led Zeppelin and Green Day riots. We'll also have links to the articles we cited about each of the riots and near riots in this week's episode. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Boston Riots, Three Centuries of Social Violence, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Special thanks this week to Al Quint of Suburban Voice for going into the archives to bolster my fallible memory of the Troubles' last show. And thanks to Joe Harris for sharing his experiences of the famous Green Day riot. Before we let you go, we have listener feedback to share this week. Our friends over at the Boston Preservation Alliance took to Twitter to say, Looking for a podcast that uncovers Boston history? Then check out Hub History for Boston stories beyond the Freedom Trail. Our fellow podcasters at the Inward Empire podcast also recommended Hub History to their followers. They said, Hub History is a great podcast about the history of Boston. Well-researched, well-written. I've learned a bunch about my hometown from listening. Check it out. Our listeners should check out Inward Empire as well. They release a handful of episodes each year where the hosts take a deep dive into the ideas and ideologies that drive American history, from the Molly Maguires and Pinkerton thugs to the rise and fall of the Diem regime in South Vietnam. Somebody who goes by the Twitter handle m biker gave us a bit of understated praise. The podcasts keep getting better and better. After listening to our episode about the so-called pirate tunnels under the North End, Michelle S. also had a simple response. Great episode. Thanks for the research that went into this. Kent B. used chore time to catch up on a few of our past episodes, writing, Had yard and other work to do today, and I learned a lot listening to several episodes. Now, when I should be winding down, I see you posted your Quebec episode. We love it there. Okay, I guess one more before bed. Kent has it all figured out. If you do yard work, housework, workout, or commute to work work, you have time to listen to podcasts. And if you're listening to podcasts, you should make sure that one of them is Hub History. We also got a few comments on our show about Mayor James Michael Curley's attempt to ban the Ku Klux Klan from meeting in Boston. Twitter user the MJL shared a personal anecdote, saying, I remember my grandmother, Boston Irish, born in Dorchester, telling me this story, proudly. John C. was a bit skeptical of Curley's motivations, writing, It didn't stop Curly from doing a fascist salute in the North End a la Mussolini. Also, the KKK tried to make contact with the South Boston Information Center in the 70s to move in on the busing situation. They were told to pound sand. Marie D. pointed out some facts that we should have uncovered for the same episode, but missed. In 1924, the KKK burned two crosses on top of Prospect Hill in Waltham. They timed the burnings to coincide with the parishioners at St. Mary's Church leaving an evening service. Their intent was to intimidate Catholics, especially Italians. One listener, who asked not to be named, took issue with the tone of my introduction to the KKK episode, commenting on the so-called Straight Pride Parade. Their email said, in part, I've been a listener for quite a while, and I've appreciated the recent trend of topical episodes, and your ability in episode 140, which was about the riots in Grove Hall in 1967, to cover protests without reproducing too much of your source's prejudice. That made it all the more disappointing when you shifted from linking this episode's topic to the news to chiding the rest of Boston about self-control and feeding the trolls. These comments come off even more poorly in light of what actually happened on Saturday. Please understand that some of your fellow Bostonians are facing threats that they cannot ignore, and were doing so even before 2016. I take the commenter's point, especially noting that my ability to ignore something like straight pride comes from my own position of privilege. I certainly didn't mean to sound like I was scolding Boston's marginalized communities who are facing more threats now than they've had to deal with for many years. I just can't get over my complete disdain for the organizers of that event and my disappointment that they were able to spin the day into a moral and propaganda victory. Instead of commenting on a recent episode, listener Joni sent along a request for a future podcast topic. By the way, might I humbly suggest Chaz Metz as a subject for a future episode. Our own Henry Ford, minus the, uh, crazy stuff, who did bicycles, cars, and planes. His cars won the 1913 Glidden Reliability Trophy and were sold on an innovative installment plan. They had plans to build one of the largest auto factories in the world in Waltham until World War I, and possibly anti-German sentiment, led to the U.S. taking the factory to produce airplane parts. After the war, the government refused to pay Metz enough to retool, and they folded. Oh, and he was responsible for one of the first production motorcycles in the country, and the first car to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. If there's a topic that you'd like to hear about on a future show, drop us a line. We can't guarantee that we'll use your suggestion, but we'd love to hear it. We also like getting your factual corrections and your alternate sources that we missed. If you want to leave us some feedback on this show or propose a future topic, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255, where you can call and leave us a voicemail. We'd love to get some audio feedback that we can share in a future show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing the show. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a thank you gift. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about the birth of historic preservationism in Boston.